Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. This Mother's Day, celebrate the extraordinary women in your life with a heartfelt gift from Blue Nile. Whether it's for your mom, a mother figure, or yourself as a mom, find that perfect piece to express your love and appreciation. Explore Blue Nile's exquisite pearls and mesmerizing gemstones that she's sure to love. Enjoy fast shipping options like guaranteed free shipping and returns. Make this Mother's Day unforgettable with a piece from Blue Nile. Right now, get up to 50% off at BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. Hello and welcome to the new edition of TLS Voices. My name is Stig Abel, the editor of the Times Literary Supplement. Each week we'll be coming to you to discuss major stories from this week's TLS, plus any other cultural events of significance. Coming up in this week's show, the TLS has an extract from historian Tom Holland's new book on Athelstan, the 10th century King of England, whom Tom considers to be significant in the birth of modern Britain. This at a time, of course, when the whole concept of modern Britain is under considerable existential threat. Speaking of which, you may have noticed there's been a little referendum here in the United Kingdom. The people have spoken and voted for Brexit. The People's Classics Don, Mary Beard, has looked at the classical precedent for this sort of direct democracy and its lessons for us today. Also coming up, the cover story of the paper is an investigation into the aesthetic and moral value of ugliness. Please don't look away now as we will be discussing the importance of the ugly with philosophy editor and Cambridge professor Tim Crane. Plus, former TLS fiction editor Lindsay Duguid joins us to discuss English country houses. She has reviewed The Long Weekend, a history of the pre-war country house by Adrian Tinniswood. Finally, we will conclude, as is customary, with a poem, this time from the TLS archive. Bill Manheyer is reading his own poem, written in 2008, called, happily enough, Visiting Europe. So first, let us go back to the 10th century. David Horsepool, the history editor of the TLS and author of Athelstan, Tom Holland, joins me now. Uh, David uh, Horsepool, I mean, this is sort of history told through the lens, actually very convincingly, of a of one man, you know, a great man as a way yes. of telling history. Is that, do you think, an uh, appropriate way of looking back at, uh, uh, at English and British history? I think it's appropriate for our history, for a lot of it, because the, as it were, the progress, the advances that were made in British history were often presided over by a monarch, and through monarchy we kind of recognise the country we're in today. So I think it, it does, it still has some traction. I was wondering if we could ask Tom, I should think if you stop the man in the street... You might have heard of Alfred the Great. He's unlikely to have heard of Athelstan. Why do you think Athelstan's been forgotten? Well, I think partly it's because England became such a part of, of people's mental furniture. People just took his achievements for granted. I think it also reflects the, the paucity of the sources. The reason that people remember Alfred, as you well know, because you've written a book about it, is that we have a biography 
of him written by a contemporary. We have Alfred's own writings. The Anglo-Saxon Chronicle goes into considerable detail about his feats. So it is possible to construct quite a vivid portrait of, of Alfred and what he did. We lack that with Athelstan. The, the, the details that we get of his reign in um, the Anglo-Saxon Chronicle are very, very sparse. So, for instance, the year 97, when he conquers York, it seems to me a date as decisive as any in British history. There's just a single line in the Anglo-Saxon Chronicle. It doesn't, it doesn't go into it at all. And, and we, we don't have the kind of detailed biographical rendering of him that would make him live, that, that, that would bring him to life. We have an account by William of Malmesbury, who was a monk in the Wiltshire town where Athelstan was buried and so had a, a particular enthusiasm for him as a figure, who wrote a, a history of the English kings. And he, he praises Athelstan as the man who, in the opinion of English, governed them with a greater concern for law and for education than anyone else in their history. And he rests that claim on a book that he says he possesses that, that, that described Athelstan's reign and was written in the 10th century. But that book hasn't survived. And so as a result, Athelstan perforce is a shadowy figure. But having said that, it is possible, I think, to, to kind of give him back a, a degree of life because we do have the record of his coinage, which is incredibly revealing. And we have a number of charters issued in his name, which, which similarly, they enable beams of light to illumine what what is otherwise darkness. I'd like to talk to you both a bit about nationalism because we're, we're, we're talking about that really, the creation of England and therefore for Britain. And of course, nationalism is never more in the news than at the moment. Actually, in the paper, the TLS this week, we carry a review by Hugh Strawn of David Reef's book In Praise of Forgetting, which argues, and this is a quote from it, the need for a national myth works against the grain of complexity. It creates a false continuity using analogy to generalise about new situations with different participants. And I suppose I'd like to hear both of your thoughts on when you start creating myths or even creating historical lines about our nation, you can lead into oversimplification, which can lead to a sort of nationalistic myth-making, which isn't necessarily that helpful. Do you think that's a fair assessment? Well, I, I, I think that, that almost invariably the messy reality of history is, is always more complicated than myths. But I think also, of course, that myths then become part of history. They have a, a crucial influence on the way that, that, that people see themselves. What is interesting about Britain and its two main constituent kingdoms, England and Scotland, is that the initial myth was a myth of Britain. The idea that, that, that people had a British identity is, is incredibly strong in the Anglo-Saxon period. The reason that the future kingdom of Scotland calls itself in Gaelic Alba, which is also the word for Britain, is that the king of the Scots could not conceive of being a king without also claiming a British identity. The Welsh similarly see themselves as having been deprived of the whole of Britain. That's why they call themselves Britons originally. And the reason that the Archbishop of Canterbury claims a primacy over the whole of Britain is likewise because he sees himself as in some way a more than English figure. And what happens when England and then Scotland emerges is that those identities gradually supersede that British identity. But I don't think that the British identity ever wholly goes. And, and so when James I of England, James VI of Scotland wants to promote an idea of Great Britain, he has actually has quite a lot to work with. And famously, Linda Colley, with her book Britons, in, 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 published in the early 90s, argued that the idea of Britain was was essentially fabricated in the 18th century and that it was dependent on all kinds of factors such as Protestantism and imperialism that 
no longer apply and that therefore the United Kingdom was doomed. I think you could look at that in a different way and say that actually the lesson of that is that if countries are to cohere, myth-making has as much a role to play as anything else. Do you think writing things down might have a big role to play? I was just thinking that you said that one of the reasons we forget Athelstan is because not much is written down that survives. And one of the things that we're facing at the moment is that we don't have a written constitution. We sort of do rely on a a combination of tradition and myth and custom and practice to establish what we should do in strange situations such as the one we find ourselves in now. Do you think that we've sort of missed a trick there as, as a nation, that we've re- relied too much on, on myth and its adherence? Well, I, I mean, we, to, to, to an extent, we do have a written constitution, don't we? It's just that it, the, it's in the written points of the constitution are scattered all over the place. Yes. I, I mean, essentially, the crisis that we face now is the, the fact that we are a parliamentary democracy, but we have taken a fundamental decision based on a plebiscy. And so the relationship then between the referendum result and the fact that we're a parliamentary democracy is going to come into, you know, there's going to be a massive, massive tension there. But I guess that those are the kind of tensions that can arise even with written constitutions. And you need to look at um, the, the gridlock that can affect the United States to see that. Yeah, so there's no, no easy solutions, even if you, um, you ignore history, as it were. We're going to have to leave it there, but we're going to be talking to Mary Beard, actually, about the classical tradition of plebiscites and referendums and how the Athenians probably were used to using this form of direct democracy and we Brits are rather uncertain when we give it a go and you may well say that the proof of that is in the current chaos that we're now facing. Uh, I'm sure that's true but we might also want to consider introducing ostracism. (laughs) (laughs) Now there's an idea I think we can all get behind. Uh, Tom Holland, thank you very much indeed. His book Athelstan, The Making of England is out, it's extracted in the TLS Uh, and David Horsepool, the history editor of the TLS, thank you very much indeed. So, to the referendum that has turned upside down and inside out British politics, perhaps permanently. It was a rare example of the British people being trusted with the most direct form of democracy. Something which, it would appear on the face of it, has rather a credible classical pedigree, the 5th century BC Athenian world of ostracism and citizen participation. Mary Beard has written a lovely essay on the connection between British referendums and the classical past, and she joins me and Thea now. Mary, before we consider that connection is the rather idealized world of Athens governed by the people for the people all participating equally is that a is that actually true as a as as a historical fact I think there are all kinds of ways in which it isn't true and to some extent western democracies since the middle of the 19th century have invented a version of classical Athens in which the people really had power. Before the 19th century, um, most Western scholars thought Athenian democracy was a very bad idea because it was basically mob rule. But since really in Britain since 1832, Athens has been a way of thinking about what real democracy would be, uh, citing democracy in its essential form 2,000 years ago in the past, and in all kinds of ways. It was much grubbier, it was much less satisfactory, and much less people power than that would ever suggest. I mean, it's it's quite interesting to reflect on how... the Athenian democracy had a trouble with getting a good turnout of voters and nobody 
uh, in the height of Athenian democracy, uh, nobody who wasn't actually from the traditional aristocracy was ever a real political leader. And those problems are before you ever get onto the problem of the fact that this was a, a men-only democracy too. What you talk about in, in the piece, and, and we'll get to the, the referendums, because there's an, a very interesting thesis emerges for it about um, how much we, we should trust the people to uh, make these decisions and how much we should involve them throughout their lives, which is one of the, thing, the, the lessons of Athens. What was the Athenian view on, on lying politicians? Did they, did they accept, as we must do, that uh, all politicians lie to us all the time? Athenians are very worried about how far and to what extent political leaders told the populace the truth. And they saw, I think probably rather more clearly than we do, that democracy is forever undermined if the people are confronted by clever rhetoricians who can tell a good joke and spin a good line, but are simply not telling the truth. And constantly, Athenians in the 5th century, in the 4th century, they worry terribly about whether rhetoric and the clever speaker can, in a sense, get the electorate to do what the speaker wants them to do, flying in the face of facts, truth, ethics and morality quite easy to see some modern parallels. I was going to say, does anyone want to say any words like Boris Johnson at any point in the next couple of minutes, or shall we just let that uh, uh, lie quietly? I think we can I think we can let the words Boris Johnson seed in people's minds. And it wasn't, I mean, it isn't quite as simple uh, an issue as maybe I've been suggesting, because Athenians want people, they want speakers to be plausible. They want speakers to speak well. They're, they're very, very tough on some poor innocents who get up in the Athenian assembly, have never been trained to speak, make a real mess of it, and they throw the equivalent of rotten tomatoes at them. I think they're as conflicted as we are between the desire for people to speak plausibly and powerfully, but also the sense that possibly they're telling you a load of whoppers. And there's nothing worse than a whopper told as if it was a truth. But you make an interesting point in your in your piece about how the Athenians, how aware they were that... Uh, citizenship and and knowing how to vote i don't mean which way but how was something that they that they worked at they were aware of it being a learned thing um, which is something i worry about not being the case so much these days yes i i absolutely agree with that i mean i think that that whatever the the faults and deficiencies of Athenian democracy were, and it, it isn't the kind of rosy system that we often imagine it was a system in which all major decisions of the state were taken by the people who turned up at the assembly. And there was a very, very strong sense that politics was something that anybody could do. That's what democracy is about. It's not, we're not dealing here with nasty old Plato's philosopher king saying, you know, only the philosophical elite can be trusted with politics. I think the Athenian democratic belief is that everybody can do politics, but it's something you have to learn to do. You have to learn to be a citizen. And that means learning how to adjudicate argument, learning how to argue yourself, and learning, uh, in the words of the great comic playwright Aristophanes, learning how to tell 
the better argument from the worst, the superior argument from the inferior. And I think that that's where we've really missed a trick because representative democracy doesn't, in a sense, lay out that model of learning to be a citizen for us. And then when you get suddenly, you know, uh, like a, you know, bone thrown to a dog, you know, a referendum thrown to us poor old citizens, we haven't ever been taught or learned how to use the kind of power of decision making and to make good decisions and to see through the crap. That can sound an extremely conservative argument, but I think actually it's a more it's a it's a, a radical argument. It's saying that not that there are only some people, only the intelligent can be trusted. I don't believe that for a minute, and neither would most Athenian Democrats. What is important is that we all see that politics is a craft to be learned, not just for us you know, every 20 years or so to be told to make a decision. And if we're going to do direct democracy, therefore, um, and the Swiss do it more than we do, then we have to go through a process of all understanding what it means and, and, and how to take part yeah. in it, rather than it being seen as this was, as a political solution yeah. for a party problem yeah. for David Cameron. We have a referendum because yeah. David Cameron was worried about UKIP. Uh, that yeah. is the cause of what we've yeah. what we've got to now. Referenda can be built in as part of a political process, but they have to be have to work at them. And I think there's nothing really worse than a referendum, you know, once every couple of decades or so, when what you get is not only an electorate who's not skilled in this, they haven't haven't had the chance to be skilled, but kind of every bit of discontent, all prejudice, gets piled into just one vote. And it's very different from a general election. Um, The issues are very different. Because actually in a general election, by and large, we know that an awful lot's going to go on the same after the election. Um, There'll be some things that are different, but basically things will struggle along in much the same way for quite a long time. What we had was a radical, irrevocable decision taken by an electorate, and I'm including myself here, this isn't a kind of you know, self-satisfied academic saying the rest of the people aren't capable of doing this. None of us are used to this process. Well, and none of us actually really are capable of making a decision with the facts, because the facts are not known even now. And no, I think that you know, Aristophanes would... You know, he, he ridiculed in the 5th century BC all kinds of failings of the Athenian electorate, quite rightly in some ways. He would look at this in absolute astonishment. You know, to say, here's an electorate trying to decide a major constitutional issue once and for all without any facts. This is barking. It's difficult. It's difficult to know whether whether I found reading your your piece comforting to know that there's such a strong precedent, or to just find it utterly dismaying because it just it just sort of implies that well, you know, that's that's the way it is. It's always been that way. It always will be. Uh, you know, I, I, I hope in some ways it's comforting, and I think that you know we have to be a bit careful of saying, oh look, the Athenians got it right or got it wrong, or we can learn from them. I'm not entirely certain that we can learn anything very much. But I think that we can say, look, people have been here before and people have thought about this a bit harder than we have. You know, I feel in some ways rather kind of, you know, ashamed of myself because of all the, the doubts and ambiguities I had about this referendum. It really wasn't until after, until trying to think about it again through the lens of Athenian democracy, that I saw some of the things that I thought had been blindingly obvious. 
well, beforehand. Well, Mary, it should have been blindingly obvious to, to the government, I, I think, potentially more about the consequences of what they were doing. Um, so I think all of us perhaps took this referendum slightly for granted in terms of, of just yeah. the, the, the scale of, of the change it could affect. That, that's right. And then, of course, they thought the result would go the other way. Well, that's true. But I think that, you know, the fundamental point, as we've just been saying, the fundamental point is really we've forgotten that citizenship is something you have to work at. And that's not having a citizenship class in a in in a year ten at school. It's about learning to be citizens on the job. We've forgotten that. Mary Beard, thank you very much indeed. Thank you guys. Now to the ugly. Thea and I are joined by Tim Crane, the philosophy editor of the TLS and Knightsbridge philosophy professor at Cambridge. The paper's cover piece this week is a review of three books by Ian Ground, all of which examine the underlying philosophy of ugliness. It's a subject rich with possibility and also difficulty. Ground says that ugliness is anomalous, messy, irregular, unsettling and ultimately unsurveyable. But survey it, he does. And Ground talks about the paradox of the ugly, why we both recoil from from and are strangely drawn to unsightly things. We revel in the ugly, we make it ironic, we convert it into the kitsch. Uh, The Hegelian philosopher Karl Rosenkrantz places ugliness at the midpoint between the beautiful and the comic, essentially recognising that it can give us some form of pleasure, which is necessary for someone like Kant if the ugly is ever to be placed within his sort of formal recognition of the context of aesthetics. So Tim, big question to probably kick us off. What is the importance, and is there an importance of ugliness to philosophy? Well, I think it's incredibly important because it's one of our most, um, I suppose, our most our most common and widespread aesthetic concepts. I mean, concepts in terms of which we understand our response to the sensory experience of the world and we evaluate things in our experience. Uh, but philosophers have kind of ignored it. And I think as Ian's re- um, review points out. I mean, some of the greatest philosophers of our culture, uh, like Kant, for example, um, have faced enormous problems dealing with the phenomena surrounding um, ugliness. Is it because there is this this paradox, and and that people? Because I think the front cover of the paper this week is a giant ugly blobfish, voted the ugliest animal in the world. And yet, when you look at it, it's almost cute, and it's sort of strangely yeah. pleasant to 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 look at. Yeah, I think that can't be true of all ugly things, but there is a there's a complexity to ugliness. I mean, one, another illustration you have in the, in the paper, I think, is the um, is a cockroach. Now, cockroaches cockroaches are repellent. They're also very ugly. But how those two things are related, the the disgustingness and their and and their ugliness, is quite an interesting thing. Because if you look at a cockroach, I mean, it's got beautiful symmetry. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. A lot can happen in three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at uh1.com. Ready to pop the question? 
The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Uh, it's got this you know, shiny brown-colored um, shell thing, uh, which you know, could be, you could imagine it being incorporated into some um, beautiful piece of clothing or an mm. art object in someone's house. But nonetheless, a cockroach is ugly. It's sort of ugly by association because of, of what we tend to associate it with, which possibly, is death. Possibly, and... yeah, possibly. So that's that's one one thing that needs to be brought into the picture. But um, the example of the blobfish looking a bit cute and the the cockroach maybe looking a rather sort of symmetrical, stylish, and you know something. These are these are things where ugliness overlaps with other associations that we have, certainly. And what about personal? I mean, the question is: Can, can philosophy handle the idea of, of subject? taste because I might look at a blobfish and find it cute or I might look at anything and find it cute and you may not uh, and I presume uh, one of the purposes of the philosophy of aesthetics is to try and unify why we are experiencing um, objects and if we experience them completely differently if I find something ugly that you find beautiful does that cause a problem for a unifying philosophy of, 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 of aesthetics? Uh, I think it does um, but I think we have to distinguish a number of things so I think one one thing is liking something or being drawn to it or evaluating it positively. That's a different thing from regarding something as beautiful or aesthetically excellent or, or, or a fine piece of work. So you might, you might recognize that the music of Mahler is, is beautiful in a certain way, but never be drawn to it, never want to listen to it and never like it. So I think what you like and what you judge to be beautiful are not the same things. And I think it's the same with ugliness, actually, that... You can recognize that something is ugly, but you can kind of like it. That may be because of the case you mentioned, because of kitsch. People sort of ironically have some ugly object in their house. But um, it's also coherent to think, I recognize this thing is ugly, but I, but I kind of like it. I'm drawn to it. I want to distinguish between the judgment that something is beautiful or ugly and whether you like it or not. I think there's an interesting social dimension as well, isn't there, in that, well, in Ground's essay, um, essay he says, the ugly is for those who are jaded or who, who would like to be thought yeah. so by too much beauty. So it kind of associates an appreciation of the ugly with those who are perhaps more sophisticated. It's sort of like yeah. an elite taste. And, and, and yeah. you know, that, that transfers to things, if you think about, um, I don't know, someone like Alexander McQueen's armadillo shoes, which costs yeah. an absolute fortune, but then the trickle-down fashion is, is, is for those who have a more bland, conventional idea of what is beautiful. I think it's very true that ugliness and appreciation of ugliness can be a kind of decadence, a result of a kind of decadence of people who have seen too much beauty and they want to be stimulated and provoked by something. But there's also the, the almost obverse of that, which is, comes out, I think, which is the ethical dimension of it. There's a great line in the piece where it says, if beautiful things suggest to us that the world was made for us, yeah. ugly things remind us that the world does not exist for us alone. So, yeah. And so, again, it, maybe it's the same point, maybe it's not the obverse, that there's that sort of sophistication, the sort of reality yeah. that is connoted by ugliness. Because if I talk about prettifying things, yeah. I'm saying I'm making them false. Whereas there is something, the ugly truth, the ugliness of reality kind of feels like it deliberately connotes something more real than something better looking. Absolutely. Yes, I think that's right. So, 
so I think there another really good distinction that um, Ian Ground makes in his piece is between representing something as ugly, which is something an artist can do, and they can represent something as ugly, which is sort of displaying the real truth of the world, so to speak, and something's actually being ugly, which is which is something else. So I I I think recognizing the ugliness of the world is part of. Um, facing up to, as Ian says, you know, the world does not exist for us alone. And, and do you think that ugliness has something to do with, with disorder and, and with chaos? Because I'm thinking of a bit when um, when Ground's referring to Rosencrantz's essay on um, the aesthetics of ugliness, and he says, um, he's talking about the crude, and he, he actually he discusses flatulence, and he says how yeah. this is sort of where the ugly meets the comic, um, and it's this non-arbitrary thing that affects anyone so it's common to us all and it's this thing that kind of it levels it blows apart any any hierarchies or or anything and that that is is that's that's ugliness it's when it's when we lose the order so the implication is the order is beautiful and chaos is is somehow ugly i'm not sure about that myself i think um going back to the example of the cockroach i mean maybe that's not a very good example but the cockroach's body there when you see it in that picture it's it's got great symmetry and order Nonetheless, it's, I think it's an ugly animal. Maybe that's a complicated case because the cockroach is disgusting and repulsive. And as mm. Ian points out in his essay, those are, those are different ideas from the ugly. The ugly needn't necessarily be disgusting. Well, actually, it makes the point around, though something may certainly feel disgusting or repulsive, it's not natural to say that something feels ugly. So that's right. you might be able yeah. to look at the symmetry of a cockroach, but if you were to sort of touch it and it was slimy or dirty... yeah. Does that is that ugliness or is that something different? So maybe we need to draw a distinction between something disgusting and repellent and something that is just not attractive. Absolutely. So I think disgust. I mean, disgust is a very primitive human response to all sorts of things. Whereas ugliness, judging something to be ugly, is not a primitive response at all. I think it's very sophisticated. I mean, disgust is sometimes thought to be one of the, you know, the basic emotional responses to, to the world, and is obviously associated with things like you know filth and things that are going to do us harm. I think what the point that Ian makes about distinguishing the disgusting from the ugly is very important. I wasn't convinced by Rosencrantz's example of flatulence, actually, just going back to what Thea said, because um, I, I wouldn't describe flatulence as ugly any more than, uh, although it can be comic, I agree, but uh, any more than touching something is ugly. So what really struck me reading this piece was something I'd never thought about before, is that the ugly is primarily a visual concept. Yeah. Mm. Whereas that's not true for beautiful. We talk about beautiful music, beautiful textures, you know, and um, I think there's something particularly visual about the ugly which yeah, and it, it becomes be investigated. It becomes very problematic when you try to um, extend it to all of these other things. I think so, yeah. yeah. And does this matter? I mean, this is probably a good way to, to finish this conversation because to a certain extent, whether or not something fits into a Kantian view of aesthetics is an interesting problem for professional philosophers. Yeah. But actually how we respond to ugly things, you know, deformity or uh, things that are misshapen, is is as much an, an ethical issue for everybody, isn't it? Absolutely, yes. So I think it's really important to separate the question of what is ugliness? What is our concept of the ugly? Which things do we regard as ugly? And is it right to do so? How should we react to the things we think of as ugly? Are some things that we think of as ugly you know, they shouldn't be regarded as such and they can be, as it so, so to speak, reclaimed. That's all independent of understanding what Kant said and the particular problems Kant has. I mean, I, I myself find Kant's conception of aesthetic pleasure uh, really hard to understand and really bizarre. So if that was the only thing at issue, it would be of only purely historical or scholarly interest. But I think the real question is the one you're talking about, which is what role ugliness plays in our life and how we deal with things that are ugly. 
both ethically and practically. And there's probably never been a, there's a lot of ugliness about these days as well, yeah. Tim Crane, it must be said. Tim Crane, thank you very much indeed for joining us. And it's, we're, we're talking about ugliness, the value of ugliness. It's the, it's the cover piece in the TLS this week. And as I say, staring at you when you look at the TLS this week is a picture of a drooling blobfish, which you might find to be ugly. But in the end, having stared at it all week, I find it to be oh, rather cute. I'm going to love it, yeah. yeah. <laughs> Tim, thanks very much. Thanks very much. Now let's talk about something much more civilised than ugliness, at least on the surface. Adrian Tinniswood has written a book, The Long Weekend, on life in the English country house between the wars. Lindsay Duguid has reviewed it for the TLS and joins Thea and me now. The book tells a tale of the decline of a world that was dedicated to luxury, excess and indulgence, flourishing of interior design, the arrival of tennis courts, swimming pools, golf courses and even airstrips. It's also a time in which the formalities of etiquette began to relax a little, although In the review, I was rather struck by the rather inflexible rule set down in a book of manners that, as a matter of course, young ladies do not eat cheese at dinner parties. Because in the end, the country house was symbolic of a world that was on its way out. Modernity, perhaps presaged by the violence of global conflict, was about to sweep away forever the old certainties that provided the central pillars of this world. So, Lindsay, before we get into the sort of social aspects of the subject, how about an old-fashioned question for you? Was it a good book? I thought it was a very good book. I like the way he mixed architecture with anecdote. Um, He obviously likes a little bit of scandal. So on one stage, you've got these immovable, timeless, lovely houses. And at the other aspect, you've got divorces, deaths, heirs doing something wrong. There's quite a lot of death in it. And uh, then, you know, a new lot come in. And the American thing is very good, that rich heiresses came in and had their own ideas of how to behave, and having been appalled at the behaviour of their husbands usually, but also of the staff, they then set about trying to make something new and a bit more relaxed and bringing in sort of new rules of informality. I mean, I think life was more comfortable, but I don't think it actually was any more relaxed. Were, were women more empowered, in, 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 in a way, in, in that world? Because see, I kind of think of, not in English country, I the Gatsby, uh, which is not, not a dissimilar time, the yes. idea of women being more central to social functions and being a little freer to go and play golf or to go and set the tone, or is that, a, is that not true, do you think? Well, I think it depends on the character. I mean, if you are a strong-minded American heiress, you can achieve quite a lot and the weapon of interior decoration is also quite a strong one you can imagine this sulky peer and she's saying I'm going to have it near Georgian darling <laughs> and he says oh what a good idea I love the idea of a weapon of interior <laughs> interior design well it is a weapon isn't it you know you say I'm going to change this I'm going to strip out all that panelling which has been in your family for 300 years I'm going to paint it white. I'm going to have a fresco. 1917 is the year that you sort of um, pin your review to as there's this time of of tension and and, and great change between the wars. It's also an interesting time because you've got, on the one hand, people who are modernising, as you say, and painting it all white. uh, You you mentioned Vita Glass, kind of a nod towards a more healthful life. And then on the other hand, you've got people who were saying, I want a castle, I want my drawbridge, I want a moat. And harking back to the more nostalgic Britain. Yes, I think that's very interesting that there are interiors which are moved out, sort of your Tudor interior goes off to 
um, William Randolph Hearst. And at the same time, someone is getting another Tudor interior from another house in England to put in. On one hand, you've got the people stripping everything out and painting it white. And on the other hand, you've got people collecting the tapestries and the ironwork and the is there a time, ups. Is it a time to be sort of elegiac about? Because you talk about the Indian summer feeling yes. at, at the end of the yes. you also I'm so pleased you mentioned John Buchan and, and that sort yes. of sense of an, a sort of rural idyll. And when we look at that, of course, we know the Second World War is coming. Yes. And it's very easy to then interpose a sense of an end of an era. Yes. But is that false, do you think, to say? This was a time when, when a certain identity of Britishness was coming to an end and the modern world was finally sort of coming to bear fully. Is that a sort of false distinction to, to George's? Well, I think that's one of the interesting things about Adrian Tinniswood's book is that he does the to and fro, the backward and forward. And every time, you know, this is an absolute end, something else is starting somewhere else. And that simultaneously you've got new houses and new ways of living and you've got people retreating back and saying, we're going to make this all exactly as it used to be in the 17th century. Periodically we read these articles about, oh, you know, there's, there's been a revival of the English country house novel or it's sort of like it's, it's the undead. Yes, I think it is. I mean, I think that in literature it's a very very good focus for all sorts of things and the book makes several literary references as well classical ones but the whole history of something which has lasted a long time but could disappear something which has been in your family but your family has sort of disappeared means that you can do literary things with it it can be a refuge and a haven or a new opportunity you can despise the people in it, which is, of course, very enjoyable. <laughs> or you can say, you know, people really knew how to live then and how marvellous it was that Lord and Lady so-and-so always had their tea promptly mm. at four o'clock. And what are the, the literary and sort of the key literary moments of the, of the country house? Because you, you, you were saying earlier that you've, you've got a this of where they start cropping up in, in literature. What are the key literary moments for the country house? Well, I think... We start off, I suppose, with Gothic and the Castle of Otranto and Northanger Abbey and actually Wildfell Hall and Thornfield Hall. This is where you go and something is there in the woodwork and something is frightening. You open an old chest and you find, ah, horror. And then I think you lead on from that possibly to the Irish country house, which of course is political and always ends in tears and also is very, very extravagant. It's on a much bigger scale than the English country house. I think people like Elizabeth Byrne and William Trevor do very good things with that because it's not going to last long. It shouldn't have been there in the first place and it's accrued all sorts of historical and political things. But I think the modern country house really is Brideshead and the sort of way in which even more approaches it is you find in lots of other things that you arrive and you see it and it's an opportunity and this is what's going to happen in the novel. So he says, we drove on and in the early afternoon came to our destination, wrought iron gates and twin classical lodges on a village green, an avenue, more gates, open parkland, a turn in the drive and suddenly a new and secret landscape opened before us. We were at the head of a valley, and below us, half a mile distance, prone in the sunlight, grey and gold amid a screen of boscage, shone the dome and columns of an old house. And you, lovely, you know, it, you're coming upon it, and 
his thing about you go through a drive and then there's more parkland. I mean, the idea that there's an avenue, more gates, open parkland, a turn in the drive, and then the house is quite... You're being led into an adventure. And also a sense of affluence. I mean, it's the sort of sense of the, how the other half live. I presume that's what one of the attractions from, from, from a reader's point of view, that it's at once something slightly familiar but slightly forbidding. You feel you know what you're coming to, but it is still yes. imposing yes. Uh, and, sli- I mean, and I suppose slightly intimidating. And all these novels do make a bit of a play about social awkwardness, you know, what do you call the butler and um, what do you do about dinner. I think there's a part of it too that you could sort of you're both being welcomed and also knowing that you're a part and you can comment on it and you can be distant from it. P.G. Woodhouse, I mean, the idea of being in, in, intimidated by the butler is yes. absolutely runs all the way through. I mean, yes. Bertie Worcester's intimidated by other butlers. Yes. Um, Beach, the butler in Blandings, is a very imposing figure who yes. never criticises anyone but sort of dips his head slightly when he wants to show disapproval. Yes, and then you also have the nice thing about Anatole, the chef, making everyone's life very anxious, don't you? Yeah, I, I mean, even, even the owners are made anxious by Anatole. They are. Everyone, everyone tries to steal Anatole. <laughs> yes. I, I seem to recall. Yes. So is it is it over-prettified? Do we, do, does the literary imagination, do you think, over-prettify the country house? Yes, because you have to, because that's how it works, isn't it? You've got to be attracted to it. It's got to be something beautiful and old and dignified. Otherwise, there'd be no point in it. And yet at the centre of that, you can, you can place a festering corrupt... Yes. Centre and that, yes. that you know, that, that's all all the stronger for having prettified yes, the, the surroundings. Yes, I'm not sure about the festering, really. I mean, I think there's a kind of, if you are a young writer arriving at this place, you know, it's, um, it's something you can use, it's something mm. you can make art out of. So you don't really want to kind of do it down too much. No, I think I'm, I'm thinking of... Say the rain, the remains of the day, or or even going back to Mansfield Park, where the the house is built on a on a kind of a moral corruptness, be it uh, Nazi yes. sympathisers or yes. uh, colonial violent yes. colonial exploits. Yes, the contrast there is is a fruitful one. And yeah. then there's the sort of social aspect of it, which is a sort of upstairs downstairs mm-hmm. uh, approach, where you have you know, as you say in the review, 1.4 million people out of a working population of 18 million were domestic servants yes. and that's a kind of built-in sense of the inequality yes. of the world and to some extent the country house embodies that doesn't it? it a sense of the haves and the have-nots it does but i don't think you get very much about servants in literature until possibly the remains of the day mm. i mean it is a mildly interesting fact that um E.P. Thompson's history of the working class didn't mention domestic servants at all. Really? He didn't count them as working class, he just excluded them. What would they become in his classification? Then? Just, just, just not even relevant? Yeah. Ghosts. Just, well, that's what the perfect servant was. Yes, right? yes, not really there. <laughs> not there at all. And actually, Tinsworth's chapters on, on Cliveden, for example, on, on the intricate hierarchies of the servants' hall and the number of people who had to organise things and how you could really be completely indispensable to the house's owner because you knew how everyone worked and you knew what they should be doing. And the sort of third housemaid whose duty was to polish the banisters, that kind of thing. Well, I I bought my dad uh, this book for Father's Day on the strength of your review, um, (laughs) Oh, well, uh, I I hope he And he's already started reading (laughs) and and enjoying it. But I do think it's the sort of thing that anyone who is British or English 
has some sort of degree of affinity somewhere with. Yes. And therefore, yes. I think that's I think that's true. And of course, you do get a nice little sort of line on English history because you say things like it was built by Edward VI yep. and Cromwell tore it down and then the sort of fifth duke remodelled the stables. So you get a sort of line, you know, you know about the Georges and what they did and you know uh, what a William and Mary house looks yes. like. And you know about the kind of false historicising of the Victorian architects, the sort of turrets and things. So, sort of so you get a little history lesson as well, which <laughs> yeah. I think people like. Lindsay, do good. Thank you so much. It's a lovely review. It, it's Agent in his with The Long Weekend, Life in the English Country House Between the Wars. Lindsay, thank you very much. That is almost all we have time for this week. Thanks to Thea, David, Lindsay, Mary, Tim and Tom all of them for joining me please do subscribe to this podcast on itunes we'll be back every week with highlights from the tls and discussions on other cultural subjects this week's paper is now on sale with the pieces we have discussed today plus the great michael hoffman on 99 things about kafka jenny hendrix on poverty in america carol j oger on the cultural impact of beyonce Yes, really. Adam Mars-Jones on the film Elvis and Nixon, Eric Morse on the forgotten French classic The Mysteries of Paris, and Michael Saylor on the theory of life, the universe and everything. You can visit our website, the-tls.co.uk, to learn more about our print and digital subscriptions, and follow us on Twitter, like us on Facebook, at TheTLS. But finally, from our archives, here is Bill Manhire reading his poem, Visiting Europe. We rush around and look at famous stuff. Once in the Louvre, late afternoon with my six-year-old son, he has truly had enough. We meet the Mona Lisa. It's 1981. I lift him above the world's admiring heads. That lady, I say, we don't know why she's smiling. What do you think she's thinking about? Money, he says. Money. Normally, being a little extra can be a bit much, but when it comes to healthcare, it pays to be extra. And United Healthcare makes it easy with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they supplement your primary plan, helping you manage out of pocket costs without the usual requirements and restrictions like deductibles and enrollment periods. So when it comes to covering your medical bills, you can feel good about being a little extra. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.